Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I sit down and speak with psychotherapist and supervisor Amy Galpin. We sit down and discuss the influence of Andrew Tate on so many young men today in the modern world. At one level, I'm conflicted about this because I don't want to endorse him in any way. I don't want to platform him. And yet, So many of the men that I see in therapy, even my own teenage son, have been influenced by this guy and his ideas, and I think they need to be reflected on, they need to be understood, and they need to be deconstructed and critiqued. And so in this episode, we really focus on his problematic opinions when it comes to depression and gender roles. We're going to offer a therapeutic commentary on some of his ideas and try to paint a much healthier and better outlook on those realities. Uh, We get into a lot of topics. We explore a lot of territory. This was a really fun conversation. I hope to do more of these. And this is the first conversation where I tried to record it as a video as well. I hope that goes well. You can find uh, the links in the show notes to the YouTube video and go ahead and watch that if you prefer a video format. Thanks, guys, for going along with me as this podcast grows and matures and evolves. 
I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to connect with you at some level. Send me an email. Um, send me a text. You can find all my information on my website, kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Get together with someone. Talk about these ideas relating to Andrew Tate, depression, mental health, what it means to be a man, gender, masculinity, and see if we can continue the conversation. So, Amy, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, Therapy for Guys. I think we have a really interesting episode today. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to talk about it, too. I have my um, issues with it as well. We're going to be discussing Andrew Tate and some of his really problematic views on women and gender roles and mental health, especially depression. I mean, I think he's fucking wrong and insane on the one hand, but I think it's really important to discuss it because of so many of the young men that we work with are inspired by him at some level, see him as some kind of role model. Yeah, we definitely hear about it in our therapy offices. I think it's interesting and it's important to talk about. Well, and even, you know, even our um, our, our son the other day, you know, we were, were out to dinner and he had, you know, he's 12 and, and he was accessing some of his material for the first time and wanted to have a conversation about it and and was, I think, drawn to some of the uh, hyper-masculine traits that, that Andrew Tate embodies, some of his emphasis on success and cars and beautiful women. And so it was really interesting to kind of deconstruct that and point out some of the really problematic aspects of his ideology. Yeah, we definitely should be managing his phone better. I know, right? Seriously. <laughs> um, well, a- as we have this conversation, I'm I'm glad that we are getting to enjoy this incredible old fashioned. Ah, uh, I'm a fan of the old fashioned. Well, we're also a fan of Don Draper and Mad Men, and that was his cocktail of choice. Talk about masculinity! Oh gosh, man, I. We we need to do an episode on Mad Men, but I kind of want to pause because I think that would be a rabbit trail that I wouldn't stop. I would just obsess over and and talk about. But but I've got to say, the old fashioned that we're drinking is made with the Angels Envy Rye, which I think is our favorite of all time. At least when it comes to making an old fashioned. Absolutely, I think I have an idea for our next 
podcast. Okay, we, throw it out there. You and I both need to make a list separately of masculinity, like people who who put out masculinity, and we need to talk about those. I like it. Sounds interesting. That's a really good idea. I get Donald Draper. Just saying. Damn. Okay. He's on my list first. You do Donald Draper. I'm going to do Walter White. You get Andrew Tate. <laughs> oh, fuck that. That's what we're doing right now. No, I'm going to do... I, I've been wanting to do something on uh, Breaking Bad, which is like my third favorite show of all time. Clearly, if anyone's ever listened or knows me at all, I, I'm obsessed with TV. So Walter White might be an interesting one to explore as well. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so so... What I want to do to kind of set up the conversation is to read these two like paragraphs from online articles about Andrew Tate's problematic influence on young men in the broader uh, culture. And then maybe we can kind of reflect on on that a little bit. And then I have these two clips that I want to play. One is on mental health, um, Robin Williams and depression. And the other one is on some of his views on gender roles. And then I just want to see where we go with that. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Just don't torture me with long clips. I don't think they'll be too long. Not any longer than when I talk to you. So (laughs) I I think I already tortured you enough. (laughs) Okay, so here's here's the first um, little paragraph from, from an online article that I read today. It's from Harry Torrance from The Boar. And the article is entitled, Andrew Tate has the end of, in scare quotes, the king of toxic masculinity finally come. Here's what Torrance says. Overall, while Tate's shelf life of fame is most likely concluding, thank God, we must consider why as well as how Tate, a man whose views at first glance would appear only to appeal to the fringes, became such a widely discussed figure in popular culture. First, it may be worth considering the problem at its root, why there remains such a large portion of disaffected and discontented young men who feel Tate is a worthy hero. I want you to remember that line because that's important. In addition, his unprecedented ability to utilize social media algorithms such as to make himself not only available but unavoidable arguably marks a new era in the digital age where anyone who can successfully manipulate these algorithms and with flood pla- and can, can flood pa- platforms with outrageous views can obtain literally billions of views. Finally, in the attention economy, controversy is currently at a strong selling point. As filmmaker Adam Curtis puts it, angry people click more. While Tate's damage appears to be largely done, He has carved a blueprint for others to influence millions of impressionable young people in similar similar ways. And and I will say, even though what he said, I think, is right on as of, I think, either today or a couple days ago, he is back on Twitter. Elon Musk gave him the green flag. So he's actually at least back on Twitter. I don't know if he's anywhere else because he was in August sort of deplatformed from some of the major social media sites because of some of his uh, misogynistic and racist and homophobic, you know, claims. Yeah, I'll give him that. He definitely knows how to reach a large audience. You know, but even in saying that, I, I struggle with, does this man, 
actually believe the shit that he's saying or is he just wanting to get clicks and views and is he just trying to stir the pot does that even matter yeah that i don't know but i can tell you as you know a therapist of teenagers and sometimes young young adults and even men at times i across the board i hear about him he comes up Oh, man, I, I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said he comes up at least two or three times a day. This is from teenagers, young adult males, and, and even some parents who, while they're skeptical of some of his extreme, like, misogynistic claims, still think that some of his sort of self-help, rugged individualism, pick yourself up by your own bootstrap mentality is something that their you know teenage boys need to listen to and kind of embody. Yeah. You know, and I mo- I mostly work with teenage girls and, you know, whether it's positive or negative comments, I definitely get them. Yeah. So I, I guess to go back to to what Harry Torrance said in the article, the, the thing that really struck me that I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on was he said, it may be worth considering the problem at its root, why there remains such a large portion of disaffected and discontented young men who feel Tate is a worthy hero. Why do you think so many young men feel that Andrew Tate is a worthy hero? Well, you know, I, I can't, you know, I know that you and I have talked about this. I can't help but think that, you know, we have people coming to therapy who are like, if you could just tell me what to do, like, what's the next step? Fix this for me. Like, just tell me what to do. And I feel like Andrew Tate, um, one of the things he does is, with a sense of confidence, he just tells you what to do. It's like, if you just do what I say, you're going to be fine. Yeah. I, I, I think he's playing to what a lot of young men probably experience as some profound anxiety and ambiguity and ambivalence in their life. Maybe we could label that as just a profound sense of uncertainty about who they are, the, climate change, the the current economic, you know, situation, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so I think he's this self-assured authoritarian figure that's speaking to their uncertainty and they're latching onto him as though he has the answers. He also has their social media figured out. You know, that's a good I can't point. tell you how often I hear kids say, you know, when I ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, they th- say things like, I want to be an influencer. Or I want to, um, you know, play my video games and have them shown on YouTube and um, across all of the media platforms. And they just really pride themselves on making videos that get seen a lot by their friends. And Andrew Tate has that figured out. Yeah. Yeah, no, in, in some ways he does. And, and I think that's a part of his huge sort of reach and, and, and influence. Now, as, as we reflect on the current state of young men and why they're so drawn to him, seeing him as this almost savior figure or hero, I think about this quote from author Robert Greene. He says, the need for certainty is the greatest disease that the human mind faces. When you hear that from a therapeutic perspective, what do you think about, Amy? I think it's right on. And I say that because I think that a lot of people come into our offices thinking, oh, I, I just need a couple of sessions. If you could just tell me what to do, then I can walk out of here and I'm going to be just fine. And the reality is that life is on a spectrum. It teeters and totters back and forth. It's it's about balance. It's my favorite thing to say. 
it's probably the most annoying thing I say is that life is about balance. Like, um, you know, if the pendulum swings one way, it's going to swing the other. Um, you know, and I, I think that, um, I don't know where I'm going with that. So why don't you take over? Well, no, I, I think from, from, from what I know about you and, and your perspective, I, I think you're getting at the fact that, that life is inherently complicated and complex <laughs> and can't be put into neat boxes. Right. Sometimes acceptance is the best way. But, 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 I, but I, 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 and this is where I think so many young men are drawn to Andrew Tate, even though we all sort of intuit that, holy fuck, this thing we called life is in some ways impossible and, and so difficult. I, I think this is where you see, you know, fascism growing in some ways and, and, and just certain people that kind of give in to a heavy handed authoritarian sort of community we we desperately long for someone to give us a sense of stability and security and quote unquote the right answer when we feel that things are you know a little bit chaotic and wild right i think he also taught he speaks to some of the things that our boys are spoon fed when they're um growing up you know junior high and high school in the locker room i mean the way that the toxic ways that guys talk to each other and and push each other and the way the things that they say. I mean, Andrew Tate feeds that. Um, so even subconsciously, if they don't agree with it or they feel lost, um, it really speaks to the way that they talk to each other toxically when they're that age. Yeah, no, that's a really good point that he's sort of taking some of the dimensions of being an adolescent boy and, you know, turning them to volume 15 in a really exaggerated way and using that as an appeal, the, the ripped body, the muscles, um, you know, the cursing and his joking and just his abrasive, uh, demeanor, his talk about, you know, having sex with all these women. There, there's all these elements that I know appeal to these young men and he's just taking it to the extreme. I'm, I'm sure that's a part of his draw. Do you think those as an adult therapist that works with men, do you feel like those messages fade? As people get older, I mean, I know in junior high and high school, um, that's what's happening in the locker rooms. That's what's happening in the hallways. For for I, I guess at some level, I can only speak for myself and my perspective. Absolutely, it fades, and, and I'm I'm hoping we can get into this in just a moment. I I think what's so problematic about it is it's relating to women specifically as objects, as not fully human, I would argue, that that's what ultimately his perspective leads to, um, an obsession with wealth and, you know, fast cars and, and working out all the time. I mean, there's elements of that which are fine, I guess, but the way he ends up framing it is this super hyper-masculine ideal that I don't think is sustainable or a recipe for a meaningful and fulfilling life. But I have to say, even as a woman... Um, you know, the, the way that things are presented for these, these female influencers, these women who, you know, are constantly trying out the new fashion, you just see them at the, at the next nightclub or the next, you know, at the, um, Eiffel tower and they're in their fancy new clothes or wearing the, the most expensive shoes. Um, and they're showing people what life is supposed to be like on a daily basis. Um, you know, Andrew Tate feeds that he's, he's living that life. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was torturing myself today, sort of doing research on him and listening to a bunch of videos. And his uh, Hustlers University, which is where he makes, I think, a lot of his money. I don't know. It seems like complete bullshit to me. And there's a lot of articles out there that point out it's just some kind of pyramid scheme, which ironically is taking advantage of a lot of young men, even though the message is, you know, don't let society and, you know, the the 1% take advantage of you. I, I think they're being duped, sadly. What, step up and make money? Because yeah, that's how it works? exactly. Well, if, if, you, if you watch some of the videos, some of the sort of testimonials on the Hustlers University website, it's... It's what appears to be some disenfranchised men talking about how much money they make in a month because they've learned these amazing principles from Andrew Tate, and now they're fucking rich, and it's it's just crazy. So I, I know that you know we've both reflected on how so many young men today can feel disconnected and disillusioned and disenfranchised. There's this quote from the great psychoanalyst Eric Fromm of the last century. And he says, it seems that nothing is more difficult for the average man to bear than the feeling of not being identified with a larger group. Wow. When when, when you hear that, what comes to mind? So the interesting thing about that though is, you know, you're talking about people identifying with a larger group, but Andrew Tate isn't the larger group. He's the 1%. 100%. Yes. So how does that work? I, I I think that's part of the the bullshit that that infuriates me is he is sort of the one percent, and yet in a twisted kind of way he's speaking to all these men that are a part of the ninety nine percent, and you know not identifying himself as the one percent and basically telling them, hey, there's this other one percent out there that you have to kind of be aware of and you know that are trying to keep you down. But he's sort of saying that message while participating in the corruption all the way down. Why does that feel like Donald Trump telling people if they just get into real estate that they're going to be billionaires? (sighs) Don't even get me started on that, man. I'm not sure I can go there. (laughs) (laughs) It's just what comes to mind. No, but I think you're right. I mean, but these are the messages that we get. We, you know, it's the one percenter telling us, you know, all you got to do is just step up. I mean, I did. Um, which is funny because if you look at their backgrounds, none of them came from no money. Oh, absolutely. And and in a moment, whenever I play the clip on his horrible views on depression, I hope we can get into sort of the mythology of picking your up, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. What what I even see in a lot of you know contemporary Instagram male influencers, I'm not saying they're as bad as Tate, but their whole message is this reductionistic, simplistic self-help idea that if you just work harder than the next guy, that's where success is going to be found. And that just misses the larger economic and cultural and social realities that many of us get beat up by and can't control. Yeah, just do what I did, except that dad gave me $100,000 <laughs> to get started. Exactly, exactly. Okay, why don't we start by playing the the clip on depression and his general understanding of mental health. And then after he speaks, um, after we kind of go through that torturous uh, clip, then maybe we can offer some reflections. That sounds good. Detrimental. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you once and for all. Robin Williams is my test case. So 
I often say depression isn't real. If you don't know that about me, you can watch my video on Tate speech about my mind tricks on how to beat depression. Depression is a state of mind, and with an iron mind, you can destroy it. I teach people how to do this. But Robin Williams is the case. People often come to me and say, well, if depression isn't real, why did Robin Williams kill himself? And that's a good, that's a pretty good argument. I mean, Robin Williams was famous. He was a millionaire. He didn't have to grow old gracefully. He could have had 19-year-old girlfriends for the rest of his life and drove Lamborghinis and bungee jumped and do whatever the fuck he wanted. He was liked by everyone. No one disliked him. No negative attention, no negative media, nothing. So why does Robin Williams kill himself? Well, I'll tell you why. Therapy is why. Robin Williams did 12 years of therapy. For 12 years, not only was he taking mind-altering antidepressant drugs, which is a video in and of itself, why I'll never do antidepressants, but on top of that, every single day he's sitting there with a fucking therapist. If you sit in front of someone all day, every day, and talk about all the bad things that have ever happened to you all day, every day, you're going to feel pissed off. Even I would want to jump off a fucking bridge if I spent 12 years talking to some dickhead about all the bad things that's happened in my life. It's detrimental. Sitting there crying about bad things is never going to help you. If you're the kind of person who feels like they need therapy, you need someone to talk to, to make me feel better. Do you know what you are? You're useless. Because in the harshest realities of this cold world, there are people in Syria whose entire families have been blown to fuck with a bomb from the sky who are still getting up every day, making fucking bread and selling it on the streets so they have enough money to buy a new pair of sandals sometime next year. While you're crying about fucking nothing with your first world bullshit to some dickhead therapist who probably does coke on the weekends. Wow. 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 How the fuck do you even respond to that? I have a feeling we're about to. <laughs> yeah. Okay, where, where do you think we should start? Oh, first of all, okay, clearly this man has never taken a research class. Does he know how to do fucking research? <laughs> Robin Williams is one man, and I have to say that Robin Williams had a terminal illness. He was not going to get better. He didn't want people to see him the way that he was, the way that he was. Yeah, I, I forget exactly what he suffered from. It wasn't just depression, right? It was a kind of a form of Alzheimer's. But he didn't want people to see him like that. That is, um, that's an understandable on some level reason why someone might take their own life. But it's not certainly representative of the general population. Right, yeah. And and, and I think his depression actually came with a lot of physical pain. Um, embarrassment. Not, yeah, embarrassment. So... That, that that's one thing that kind of sticks out that again I, I even struggle why the fuck are we even giving this guy andrew tate you know the light of day if so much of what he says is just factually impossible and terrible and wrong but again he has this huge influence on the population that we we work with so i yeah, think it's important to address how would people feel if i was like oh i just did this research study on a b and z on one person and these are my results. Would you believe that that is likely to be the consistent result? Right. No, it's crazy. That's insane. It's crazy, Amy. Okay, so, how, and I know we sort of maybe touched on this a moment ago, but, you know, he kind of starts out by saying that he has shown, right, through his videos that, I'm going to put it in my words, depression is just a mindset. If, if, you, can, if you can conquer it with a better mindset then there's no depression. As crazy as that sounds, again, just today I opened Instagram and there's someone there that that I follow 
And they were pretty much saying the same thing. It was actually about anxiety, but they're like, just have a have a good mindset, you know, change the way you're thinking about it, and you're gonna be good. You don't gotta have anxiety. Well, I'll that shit him, makes me want to throw up. I will give him this. I do talk to people, you know, with my neurological background, I do talk to people about default networks. And, you know, if you your brain does what it does to um, conserve energy. So if you're always thinking negatively, and this is not a representation necessarily of um, of a of depression in the um, clinical sense, but if you're always thinking negatively, your brain will shift to do that. And so I do think I call it fake it till you make it. Um, a lot of clients will come in going, "Oh, this whole fake it till you make it thing is bullshit." And I'll say, "Well, there is some reason why, on some level, even if you don't believe it, you should fake some of the positive because." Um, sometimes your brain will shift to maybe your default network being, being more positive. You may have to work harder to be negative. Um, so I'll give him that, that, you know, there is some truth to trying to find the positive in life. Although I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. Okay. So on the one hand, yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, maybe one way I would put it to, to my clients would be, you know, one aspect of depression is cognitive or to put it in more self-help terms, a a part of your mindset. You know, even one of the the philosophies that I really like and that I utilize in therapy, Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius in his meditation says, the quality of your life will be determined by the content of your thoughts. Oh, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But Marcus Aurelius was definitely not Andrew Tra- Andrew Tate. No, no, no. Okay, and so and so while 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 we can agree that there's a lot of truth to that, I think what I struggle with the most when it comes to this authoritarian figure like Tate is that he's ultimately reductionistic. Oh, I mean that's where my charitable um, outlook on Andrew Tate ends. That's all I got good to say about. Them. I'm, I'm glad Anything that you're giving him some because I can't give him any. <laughs> I'm really trying hard um, <laughs> to find the positive and the things that he said, but it's just it's fucking ridiculous. It's fucking ridiculous. And again, just because there's this sliver of truth, and I think this is where a lot of these guys get so popular and why they continue to defend themselves is like, wait, there is some truth in what we're saying. Okay, maybe, but it's taken out of context. It's reduced to this one simplistic claim. What is depression? You know, what, what, why is Andrew Tate just flat out wrong when he reduces depression to the cognitive or sort of the mindset component? Well, you know, and I, I think part of this too boils down to where does the depression come from? Because there's a lot of places, you know, I mean, some people, you know, their grandmother dies and they spend a long time yeah. trying to get better. And like I said, default networks, your your brain does kind of settle on, wow, everything just feels gloomy and there's not a lot of positive to see. Um, those people probably do a lot better with Andrew Tate and like trying to think more positively. But man, there are some people who just have family history and chronic depression and it's a it's a deficit of having the appropriate chemicals. Yeah, so so clearly there's a genetic component to it. There's there's likely a neurochemical component to it. I would argue there's a situational 
maybe even social cultural element. It is not just a poor mindset. That is a load of horse shit. Oh, I mean, if that were the case, then why do the people who who do come for therapy begging to feel better, not just immediately feel better? Right. Exactly. Now, are are there ways that people in their mindset, maybe even in their behavioral patterns, reinforce and make their depression worse? Sure. Oh, absolutely. But but to reduce depression to the behavioral or the cognitive, I think is doing a great injustice to what so many people struggle with. Oh, this is a man who's either never experienced depression or he has and he has glossed over it and hasn't done any of his work. Oh, well said. Okay, another problematic in his little clip on, you know, mental health and depression is some of his governing assumptions of what a good or happy or fulfilling life would look like. I think you pointed out, man, he's really kind of reading people's expectations through his own lens. You know, he says, why the fuck did Robin Williams, you know, get to a place where he was seeing a therapist for 12 years and get so depressed? You know, he was rich as hell. He had no negative attention. Everyone loved him. You know, he could have been basically fucking 19-year-old women and driving Lamborghinis and jumpy, uh, bungee jumping all day long. Who says that men want to fuck 19-year-old girls forever? What is that about? Exactly. Or or even ride or even drive these crazy cars or, or do, you know, extremely dangerous and risky things. Some do, and that's fine, but that's not all men. And to sort of see that as the epitome of a of a masculine life to me sounds like some kind of arrested development shit absolutely it sounds like tremendous immaturity it does to is me he too. even a man it makes me wonder just like basically in therapy we don't assume that someone wants to drive a bugatti or a maserati and have sex with 19 year old girls i ask people what is your vision of what a fulfilled life looks like and let's get you there um i all power to Andrew Tate for him thinking that that's what his what's fulfilling in life and him moving towards that and him feeling like he's obtained it. But that's not what all of us are looking for. Right. And, you know, one of the tragic things, too, and this is kind of a plug for our own approach in therapy and really in life and our own marriage is, uh, you know, kind of a relational cultural approach to things where we would say, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think you would agree with this, that that satisfaction and fulfillment and even happiness comes from the quality of the relationships that you're in. Like like the type of intimate, vulnerable relationships that you find yourselves in, that is what makes life livable and, and brings quite a bit of zest. I never hear Tate talking about being in connected, vulnerable, intimate relationships. I, I think because he would fundamentally disagree that men should do that. Oh, that's because the theme of everything that he breathes seems to be power over. You power, know, power I have over. a better car than you. I have a younger woman than you. I have the things that you want. I have more money. I have more fame. Everybody looks at me. Um, that's not what everybody's looking for. In regards to success. Yeah. So, so Amy, if, if you're speaking to any young man who's listening tonight and they're like, wait, it's not about having power over. It's not about having, you know, the greatest number of women or the fastest cars. 
how do you think about power in the context of healthy relationships? Wow. I mean, it just, it's complete disconnect. I can tell you from my experience, which isn't the same thing, but my experience of um, working in top positions in companies where there is, well, I was the only woman who was, you know, running my particular facility and everyone else was uh, middle-aged men when I was in my mid-20s. I can tell you that uh, it's lonely at the top. It, on some level, the things that Andrew Tate talks about to me feel like he's isolating himself further and further. And um, speaking to the greater public is probably his way of feeling like he's connected. Yeah, no, that's really well said. But he's so not. He's so not. You know, what I was thinking too, even from like a, a, a male perspective in relationship, um, even thinking about intimate relationships like a marriage or a longtime kind of partnership, I see it in terms of empowerment or sharing power. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's a lot of um, safety in feeling like we're both working on something. Mm. And if one of us falls behind, it's okay because the other one's got it. And that goes back and forth where the other one's got it at different times. Absolutely. Um, I can't imagine being in a situation where I'm fully responsible for everything um, to feel successful. Sure, sure. Yeah, so so there's this uh, concept that I think emerged in the 90s in terms of masculinity and gender studies. It's it's called uh, precarious manhood, and it's it's basically this idea that that to be a real man is hard to earn, very easy to lose, and must be proven repeatedly. And it just seems to me that the 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 vision of manhood or masculinity that Andrew Tate is putting out there is extremely precarious. Oh, it seems it sounds stressful even and unfair. Yeah. So so Roger Horrocks, which was a uh he was a psychotherapist in the 90s, wrote a lot about masculinity. You know, he said the masculine gender is a precarious and dangerous achievement, right? So it's something that has to be gained and sort of performed socially. And it's highly damaging to men. And that's that's one of the big messages I want anyone that's listening or watching to, to hear is, <laughs> if you follow this vision of masculinity that Andrew Tate and others are promoting, you, you think it's going to lead to all these wonderful things. It's I think it's just going to lead to more heartache. And more isolation. Greater isolation. More disconnection. Yeah, man. Another thing from the video that that struck me, and, and I want you to speak to this, you know, as a therapist in your experience, is he made it sound like therapy is just a place where people come to just talk about their problems, or in his words, to talk about fucking nothing, and that that's what ultimately led him to take his life. I mean, that's what he said, right? That that Robin yeah, Williams the negativity of killed talking himself about his negative negative situation every day. Maybe that's what kept him holding on for as long as he did. He was in a, like I said, he, he had a terminal illness. Right. Here's the thing. Obviously, without ever sharing any confidential details, we both see individuals with severe psychiatric issues that need weekly, if, if not more, therapy to just hold themselves together. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? The greater point is every, everybody comes to therapy for something different. 
Some people do come to me for very short term. I just need to get this out, figure out what my next step is, and then I'm good kind of therapy where others have um, long-term family histories and, um, um, you know, things that they need to work on. And, and for them, it keeps them, um, it keeps their ship, you know, running in the right direction. So it depends on what people come to therapy for. I mean, there are clients that I have that, you know, I do see for an extended amount of time. I wouldn't say that's most of them. Yeah. And and this is where Andrew Tate, I, I think one of his his greatest flaws is he's a reductionist. He 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 has these sort of and, and this is what people on social media, people get really popular do, they sort of distill these very complex and complicated truths into these really pithy, quick, short like sayings, right, that people latch onto, but there's so much more to them, right? You have to do your work to kind of understand them. I think he's reducing therapy to just negative bitching. Right. Has, or he venting. Ever, has this man ever been in a therapeutic office? And <laughs> it doesn't so, seem like it. <laughs> did he find did he try to find a therapist? You know, the first thing I tell my clients is finding a therapist is kind of like finding a friend. You're not gonna like everybody. Sometimes you gotta keep trying. You gotta find somebody that you actually fit with because we're all a little different. Actually some of us are a lot different, but there's nothing wrong with that because it's right for somebody. Mm. Yeah. So Maybe last question around the kind of like depression, mental health stuff that he gets into. If if anyone's listening and and they're tempted to go down the Andrew Tate path and think that therapy is this bullshit waste of time, something that actually makes things worse, that just feeds this quote unquote negative mindset, what would be your pitch for what therapy actually is? Well, first of all, I'd say find a new therapist. <laughs> yeah. You know, for real. If not all how, not all therapists are equal. If that's how you feel when you walk into the office of the person that you're seeing, or you've get never, the fuck out of there. You've never walked into an office. That's that's a problem. I mean, so you, you know, my nerdy neurological talk too is, you know, we can only speak from where we come from. You know, Our, that stuff makes me hot. <laughs> I'm glad you like nerds. Um, at the end of the day, like our brain can only compare our thoughts and our experiences to our own thoughts and experiences or those that we've heard about. And so if, if it's something you haven't experienced before, it's unfair. So one of the things that really bugged me about that clip that you were playing earlier was that, you know, he was talking about kids in Syria you know, and I can't, I tell my clients all the time, just because maybe some kid in some third world country doesn't have shoes, doesn't mean that the thing that you're going through right now doesn't matter. Because neurologically speaking, our brain compares what we're going through right now to our own experiences or those that we hear of from other people. If you haven't seen it, heard it or felt it, you can't compare to that. And so, so true. if we live in a first world country, we have first world problems. And I'm sorry, but just telling myself that, oh, there's another country where people have other issues does not make me necessarily feel better. No, gosh, Amy, I couldn't agree more. You know, Brene Brown has written extensively on this, that, that sort of comparing suffering across different socioeconomic <laughs> backgrounds or even cultures is such a temptation. Our, our brains just almost intuitively do it, but it's one of the most unhelpful things we can do. We have to work against it because I'm with you. Each person's lived reality is our in some reality. ways 
the most important thing for them. And we cannot fall into that trap of comparing ourselves to other countries. Now, does that mean we can't put it into perspective or shouldn't do anything to, you know, mitigate the suffering of others? Of course not, right? We can't be reductionistic, but we have to focus on our own lived experience. Oh, healthy perspective taking is one thing, but expecting yourself to just suck it up and get over whatever you're going through like it's not hard is crazy. That's crazy. You know, I I think, too, um, one of the things that bothered me about sort of the last aspect of his clip was, you know, referring to, you know, these therapists as as cokeheads. I don't know what exactly. I don't use coke on the weekends. I mean, I'm not going to, like, say that a therapist who does (laughs) is necessarily the worst person in the world. But um, I think there's a couple things I want to say about that. No, I I don't know those people either. (sighs) I'm not a historian of Freud, but you know, there, there's there's some talk about him getting into some of that at the end of his life. But you know, we're, we're, we're not Freud, and and that was a different time. Um, and I think people should kind of look into that if they're really interested in learning more about that. I think what what got to me though was he was painting therapists as these you know incongruous, inauthentic hypocrites, rock stars, even. Which, here's the thing, right? Like, on the one hand, I get pissed off when people think that therapists are perfect. Absolutely not. Because and we're not. Because he tells you that there are, they've got a lot of work to do on themselves. They've got a lot of work to do themselves. And on the flip side, you know, going back to Carl Rogers, who was one of the founders of this whole, you know, modern humanistic psychotherapy, he said that one of the pillars of really good therapy was what he called congruence or authenticity, which is not that the therapist is perfect by any means, but there should be a sense for the client that that who they're seeing in front of them is who that person is. Oh, I can't tell you how often I tell clients, hey, you know, here's what here's what probably needs to be done. Now, first of all, I'm the pot calling the kettle black. Right. And I want you to know that I struggle with this too and I don't do it all the time. And but maybe I'm trying. I should. But I'm trying and I'm working on it. Um I think it's important for our clients to see us as human. Otherwise it's hard for them to be human. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Can I torture you a little bit and play the little clip on his sort of ideology around gender roles? Oh, I don't even want to know, but let's just take it. Let's just do it. But let me say this before I play it. I, I actually found some of the most benign shit out there when it comes to stuff that he said, you know, he's, he has said some awful things like women bear some of the responsibility when it comes to rape. And that's so fucking terrible. I don't even want to get into that unless unless you feel compelled oh, to. We've already had this discussion. So, you know, if a man goes to the bank and gets robbed, should he should he take some of the responsibility for that? Because clearly he was asking for it. You know, I mean, I can't speak for Andrew Tate, but I, I feel like he would find a way to blame the man's defunct or deficient masculinity for for allowing himself to get robbed i I just feel like he would say some bullshit like that insane what is he he needs to go to the gym more i don't know pack a gun or something to kind of defend himself which is horseshit right okay so he has said even worse things that i'm gonna play but i think what he says here says a lot about his perspective and sadly a lot of what some of the young men that i work with are starting to kind of wrestle with in a negative way and so i kind of want to address it 
I don't think the world has ever been equal. I'm not saying that women should completely and utterly be slaves. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the modern society we live in has been built by men. All the roads you see, all the buildings you see, everything around you, men built. All of it. When women come along and say, oh, we're, we're just as important. You are just as important. But you do had a completely different role. You fulfilled a different role in society. And I think now, if you look at the roles of society, I believe men are still doing their job. But I don't know if women are doing their job. Women's job always was procreation, to look after the family and to look after the man. That's all that they had to do. And the man would go out there and risk his life and spend his time building the modern world. Men are still out here building the modern world. But when they come home now, the girl's like, oh, why should I cook for you? I think, I think women are failing in their role. I think women are failing. I think you're failing. Wow. <laughs> Gosh. All I have for that is wow. Podcast done. Wow. Over and out. No, 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 no. We, we, we've got to say a couple things before we end because that's some bullshit. Oh, it's just complete bullshit. There isn't a single thing in there. I feel like you need to, you need to hit him hard because, you know, you're the woman in the room and I'm sure this kind of infuriates you. Okay, so first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Let it out, baby. <laughs> Does he think a, a vagina has never poured a concrete space like what the fuck is that seriously i you know i I was just thinking this motherfucker has not read any of his history i know he's not from the united states has he ever poured any concrete that's what i need to know i I don't i don't know a single little ounce of concrete has he ever done that and secondly you know i mean 50 percent more like 51 percent of the population is female we're out there we're working we're paying taxes so I know that there might be a dick out there who's like physically pouring the concrete onto the streets. Where the fuck does he think the money comes from? Yeah. I mean, I'm paying taxes and I know that I'm contributing to those streets and I have been since I was, you know, in my shit. The day I turned 16, I went and got a job. I worked at Kroger's. I was paying taxes. You're one of the hardest fucking workers that I've ever met. I wanted that job. I don't understand what he's talking about. Like, who pays those men to pour the streets? And there are women out there working in construction. Thank God. I say there should be more women in construction. Mm. Um, At the end of the day, though, the whole thing is crazy. There's so much that's ignored. Yeah. No, and just a quick shout out to, you know, my boy, Jorg Rieger, who I've had on the podcast, who's really helped me to see that, you know, with all this bullshit masculinity talk about men working and being kind of ruggedly, you know, <laughs> independent and 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 picking themselves up by their own bootstraps, that it totally misses the role that women have played in the formation of these men. I mean, <laughs> what about all the mothers that raise these motherfuckers? What about the vaginas they came from? Exactly. This reproductive labor that that serves as the foundation for any other labor that comes after that you know and i have to say that you know one of the ways okay i i may not be a martha stewart i don't stay home i don't cook dinner all the time um but i will say that i feel like i support my man by you know we both have jobs so if one of us falls behind and within our our marriage you know, one of us is moving forward and making more, and then the next minute, the other one's making more. I feel like we're in this place where if one of us had to slow down or, God forbid, uh, lost our job, uh, we wouldn't be in a fantastic place, but we certainly would be in a place where we're like, okay, regroup, 
let's make a new plan. Right. But we're not in a place of zero. Yeah, no, well said. Gosh, that's so good. I'm I'm just thinking, how can this man promote these archaic, outdated, like gender role constrictions? But even in saying that, it makes me think, wow, there's probably a lot of people out there who who still believe in this shit and resonate with that. And, and maybe that's why his message has, has found such a following. Well, and I'm not saying he couldn't support a woman. It seems like obviously he makes a lot of money and he's in a good financial place. But um, how's he how's he going to back up the fact that he's supporting anything when <laughs> he only dates 19-year-olds? He yeah. takes him to dinner. Big fucking deal. Yeah, no, he's been pretty... How about pu- a family with children? Yeah, Andrew Tate's been public about only dating 18 or 19-year-old women because he likes to imprint. The only thing he's on imprinting I don't know is what his that means. dick on their vaginas. What is that? <laughs> yeah. This is messed up. It is. It is. And like you pointed out that there was like a comment on something that he wrote about that saying, "Wow, your imprinting sounds a lot like grooming." Yeah. No, it's really sad. No, he's deeply problematic in so many ways. But I guess going back to the whole gender role expectations, is there is there any sense in which you would find that that message is appealing to any young man today? You know, why why would a young man want to hear? Oh yeah, you know, it's your role to work your ass off and make all the money, and then have your wife. As he said, take care of your needs and take care of the children and cook and all that kind of shit. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with that in, if, in if the that's context your of a couple where they've made that decision together and that's the way they balance their family. I say more power to them. I celebrate that if I, that's a conscious decision. I think it's actually incredible for your children and you know when when you can make that work, I think it's impressive and very, very cool. I couldn't agree more. At the same time, not all of us can do it. Or not of us, not all of us need to or want to run our families like that or balance things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Mm. Yeah, I know a lot of women that could do it, can do it, but don't want to. In in that they don't feel it's the best use of their gifts and their resources, and they feel like better human beings and ultimately better better mothers when they don't. Well, and talk about mom guilt. You know, when you work 40 hours a week, but at the same time, you know, for some of us, it's it's the way that we best use our gifts, just the way that you said, or it's the best way we balance our families and more power to that too. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is a man who doesn't seem like he's had a functional relationship in his life, telling all of the rest of us how to have functional relationships. How does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, that that's one of the things that I haven't found online or haven't really looked into as that much is is what are his actual thoughts of, you know, kind of maturing. And and I'm not saying it has to be marriage or even a, a monogamous situation, but what are his thoughts on some type of sort of adult mature long-term relationship? Well, how can you have a mature relationship with a 19-year-old? Correct. What is that about? Yeah. No, his lifestyle wouldn't be conducive to anything like that. And as as traditional as he sounds, he's not really living into some of his ideology, which 
just points out his own hypocrisy. I well, think. and just like we pointed out earlier, that our brains can only compare to our own experience. He doesn't have that experience. Right. So who is who is he to speak to it? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, okay, so I think we're both sort of sufficiently perturbed and pissed off and, and frustrated with him and grossed out by him. I guess, do you have any final comments or thoughts or just if our our sons end up listening to this or if there's any young man that we work with or that's out there who is on the fence, you know, they, they, they're, they're drawn to Tate at some level because of his persona and, and what he puts out there in terms of the wealth and the women and the the success but at the same time they hopefully have some decent parents and maybe they've been to some therapy or they have some good relationships and they're like god he doesn't really connect with that you know more empathic side of me or the part of me that enjoys being in healthy relationships how would you steer them more in the direction of what we've been talking about which is a relational connective vulnerable approach to being a man Right, which can be very strong and very powerful, but not dickish. I mean, all I can say is if you read the DSM, you know, the diagnostic manual, um, you know, less than two, less than two percent of us are sociopaths. So, so, so he might be one of them. <laughs> he's a, he's in the one percent for a lot of things, apparently. Um, but you know, I say, you know, but life isn't a one size fits all, and so good for Andrew Tate if this all works for him. Fantastic. I'm glad it works for him, and I I wish him more um, success and happiness. Uh, But I wouldn't say he speaks to the majority of us. Yeah. I think for me, if I can speak to, I mean, two things to the guys, if you're listening. One would be, if you really want to experience success in your life, yes, it is at one level about hard work, but please don't be fooled into thinking that if you just work harder than the next person, if you just you know, get up at four or five in the morning and work out and push yourself beyond your limits, that that's going to lead to the kind of financial and even relational success that you want. That's a piece of it, maybe. But there are all these realities and forces and factors outside of your control that you have to take into consideration. And so I would implore you to kind of think about the larger systemic realities. The other piece, and maybe you could speak to this too, Amy, is I want my clients, I want every human out there to find what makes them happy, to find what leads to what the the Greeks called eudaimonia, which was their word for happiness or flourishing or a fulfilled life. I want that more than anything else. I'm, I'm a huge believer in allowing people to, as Jung would say, individuate, become these beautiful individuals But beware of people like Tate who are selling you this message that it's by having power over women or, you know, engaging in like shady business deals to make a shit ton of money, working out all the time. But that's going to bring that fulfillment. I, I just don't think it comes through those means. I think it's found first and foremost in being a human being, which means being this social creature that connects with others that experiences emotions, both the negative ones and the positive ones, that finds time 
to socially relate and connect to people at a vulnerable level. I think that's where life and meaning are found. Oh, I agree. And, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, as someone who's actually lived some life and, you know, only Yeah, four, you've lived quite a bit of only, life. <laughs> <laughs> screw you. We won't, only, we won't talk about how old only, you are. <laughs> well, we can. Only 42 years of it. I can tell you that, first of all, I'm not even close to being able to tell everybody how to live a fulfilling life and what that necessarily means. Sure. But I will tell you that the thought of owning a Bugatti and a fancy house and a jet sounds like debt and imprisonment to me. Yeah. You know, not all of us are seeking... Um, these objects and honestly I think most people who who even have the objects or are seeking those objects and are able to obtain them would say I I I'm working on filling a hole that just never seems to be filled yeah damn that's so good no I mean it, it, it seems like Andrew Tate is promoting a vision for men where they can be eventually admired or worshipped by others but what we know is that when you reach that position you can't connect with anyone. This is the truth. That's the truth. And if you're trying to fill a hole, you need a pug. Pugs are awesome. Yeah, but they snort and <laughs> their farts smell like ass. I know, but I have one. Sitting and they're lazy on, as fuck. I have one sitting on my lap right now. <laughs> hey, Bear. And I have to say that this is love. Yeah, he does not look happy <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, that's because pugs never look happy. But this is full on connection right here. Okay, I'll give you that. All right, so any last things before we sign off? Oh, please don't make me listen to any more Andrew Tate. Okay, that'll be the last Andrew Tate clip you ever have to listen to, honey. Oh, that's what you say. Torture. <laughs> but you know what? I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I honestly think just, you know, like you like to say, the important part is that we continue this conversation. Yeah, let's continue the conversation. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.